Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, masks, masks, and masks. Do we have enough of them? Will there be enough of them? Are people hoarding them? Are people giving them to us? Do we wear one or do we not wear one? We'll try to answer some of those questions on the Scott Thompson Podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. What a beautiful day it is out my window. Uh, can I see if the crows are there, Will? Let's see. It. Let's, I'm going to open the window now and just see if the Joe Crow's out there. Oh, there, there he is. Let me close that back <laughs> Uh Will and I, in our seclusion, you know, we're very tight, but yet we're far apart. Uh, we've noticed that every time the Prime Minister speaks, there's an abundance of crows flying around. So I think Rideau College really isn't in Ottawa. I think it's, it's up in the, the, the Laurentian somewhere. I think it's, he's up in cottage country. There's birds flying around all the time. All right, who's getting birdie here? Uh, a little cabin fever, per se. Uh, it is uh, Tuesday, which is great because we've made it past Monday, and we are into week four of uh, this social experiment known as COVID-19, and uh, trying to give you various different angles and such as uh, we continue with the show and, and broadcasting from isolation in Studio Thompson. Will is uh, back at the station. And let's bring in Sue Horton, professor in the School of Public Health at University of Waterloo. Uh, 3M has come up with an agreement uh, with the U.S. to continue delivering N95 masks to, uh, to Canada, which is a great thing after we had initially heard that that was not going to happen. Sue, thanks for the time. Much appreciated, and we hope you're doing well. I am, and I hope you are too. And your thoughts uh, now that it appears as if this mask, uh, this mask tug of war between 3M and the United States has has settled down. Uh, does that ease your feelings in regard to supplies and such? Uh, it's a, a great thing that happened. I mean, Saturday morning when I heard this news, I, it really ruined my whole day. I mean, it's surprising um, that you worry so much about these things that are this distant from you. But uh, you know, I'm sure a great sense of relief across Canada. And, uh, you know, let's hope uh, we can continue in this kind of cooperative way. You know, we, we're two countries that are uh, very much linked. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I say to people, it's like living next door to a super tanker. We're in a canoe and they make a small change of course. And suddenly we're at risk of being swamped. We're feeling the waves, yeah. Uh, your thoughts on, uh, since we're talking about masks, there's been some mixed messaging. Now they're saying with more information that's coming out that maybe we should be wearing them. Initially, uh, it, it was said that that wasn't uh, necessarily uh, a good preventative method of, of, of avoiding COVID-19. However, now they're saying uh, not so much for oneself, but stopping droplets from hitting other people, protecting other people. Your thoughts on where we are with masks. Do we wear a mask? Do we not? To wear a mask or not? Okay, far be it from me as an economist to give advice on that. So I will simply uh, uh, say what I've heard from experts. My own guess would be that they, it's the most important is to reserve the specialized masks for the hospitals. That's what's going to benefit all of us. Um, but for, in addition to that, the uh, US CDC is now saying, indeed, that people should wear cloth coverings over their face. Um, and there is research to suggest that that is protective. Uh, and I have to say, I took it very seriously, got out my old sewing machine, and uh, I am busy mm. making a couple of masks. You can get uh, uh, patterns online for it. 
So in regard to the 3M decision, why do you think the change of tone now? Uh, I think that's really more of a political question, and I'm an economist, it's not my bellywick, but what I have read is that Christian Freeland has done just a fantastic job, that she had worked with her counterparts in the U.S. very, very closely um, during the renegotiation of the NAFTA agreement, and my guess is that those relationships that were developed over that period have paid off now. So I think I, my guess is there was a lot of behind the scenes going on. We certainly know uh, that Canada has some tense relationships with China and, and the whole Huawei scenario and the, and the Huawei CFO that is being detained on a, on a U.S. warrant and such in Vancouver. Uh, now we're hearing that Huawei is sending some masks to uh, Canada. Uh, how do we view that? Is this goodwill or is this hoping we take a 5G network? Your thoughts on this as an economist? Uh, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, I, I noticed a very parallel thing occurred that Russia sent a whole bunch of equipment to the United States. And I think some of it is uh, out of very genuine humanitarian uh, impulses. Uh, but it also uh, provides good news coverage at home, I would guess. How long can we keep this up as an economist? Um, you know, obviously, there's uh, over 700,000 people that have applied for government aid and such. How long can we keep this up? Uh, I think we have to keep it up as long as is necessary to prevent death rates from skyrocketing. Um, you know, the idea that you could simply open up your economy at Easter and have people go back to work, I think, would be just a death sentence for many people and would cause enormous disruption because people can't work if they're sick. Um, so there are models for this. Uh, you know, what can we do if we keep the restrictions on for a month or two months? You know, are there going to be multiple waves of this epidemic? Will we, will we be able to ease up for a while and then uh, have to uh, put more restrictions in place, you know, late in the, later in the fall if there's a second wave? Um, you know, I think there are good models for this. Uh, but, of course, there's lots of uncertainty. There's a lot we don't understand about this disease. How important is it to keep some sort of economic activity going on, supply chains moving, that sort of thing? Well, it's absolutely crucial. I mean, we may not be going to restaurants, but we all still need to eat. Um, all, a lot of food is being shipped across the border because we don't produce things in the winter ourselves. Um, and what we're doing currently, it's like a wartime. We are redirecting um, our manufacturing sector away from things that we're not buying now, like new cars. And we have automobile companies stepping up and offering to produce ventilators and masks, etc., um, and other things are continuing. I mean, a lot of industries can continue online, like, you know, banking, finance. We need that because we need people to be able to send out those checks to people who are unemployed. Um, the universities are doing their part. We are still teaching. We're teaching online. Everyone is having to move very quickly to do that, you know, because we don't want a generation of kids missing out on their education for six months or however many months this takes. Uh, how do we balance keeping society moving well, not as well as isolating us? How do we keep things moving yet keep people apart? Well, I guess in Canada we are lucky because we have the internet and many things can be done through apps. You know, we have things set up for delivery, curbside delivery at our house. But what I was reading this morning was that in very poor countries, uh, I have a good colleague who's in Kenya, that, that doesn't happen. 
Um, people live in slums. They don't have access to water where they can wash their hands to get rid of the virus. And it's a choice between getting on a matatu, one of the little buses, to go to their job and set or sell things on the street, or having nothing to eat. So we're not in that situation in Canada. And, uh, you know, we're, it, on the one hand, we're such a globalized world now, and that's in part assisted the spread of the epidemic. But on the other hand, because we're globalized and we can do things through the Internet and virtually, um, that that's helping us in this situation. Sue Horton has been with us, professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Waterloo. Sue, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Stay healthy. You too, and my pleasure joining you. Thank you. You know, we've talked several times on this show in the last couple of weeks about how life will change moving forward. We're seeing this with the kids and learning online and such. And another way we're seeing this is through uh, medicine, telemedicine and such. Uh, And again, a lot of this technology has been around for a long time. It's just now we're being forced to use it. And as they always say, technology far uh, uh, far exceeds where society is, and something like this, all of a sudden, boom, comes in and gives uh, society a big hoof in the butt, and all of a sudden, society jumps right up next to uh, technology as we see what we can really do. With this pandemic going on, uh, many have turned to telemedicine uh, to find out if they're sick or not sick. I mean, you know, uh, it's not a good idea to go wandering into the doctor's office. It's better to figure all this stuff out ahead of time so you know where to go if, in fact, you are uh, having some of the symptoms. So how does this change life moving forward? Let's bring in uh, Invermere, or sorry, Indermir, uh Mahal, family physician and global journalist, fellow Dalatlana School of Public Health, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Much appreciated, Indermir. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. I hope you're doing well. We've talked uh, uh, many times on the show of late of how this is going to change things. Many said back when, when 9-11 happened, life will never be the same, and, and it wasn't in many ways. Lots of, of things changed. When it comes to telemedicine, and, you know, we're, we're experiencing the same thing with, with uh, learning online with the kids and such, I don't think people are looking for a replacement, but we're certainly realizing how this can help along the way, aren't we? How do you think things are going to change moving forward? You know, I think you phrased it perfectly, Scott. What we've learned and what we've been forced to learn is that telemedicine is a great tool in our toolbox in providing medical care. So there's a lot of instances where a virtual health visit or a phone call or even an email or a text message is okay to provide clinical care, not all circumstances, but we know it's an option, and we're now learning in Canada how we can best use those tools. How do you balance this? Because, again, it's not one or the other. Often when we have these debates, it's one against the other, and, and, and that's not the case. There's a meeting in the middle somewhere, isn't there? Absolutely. And I, I think one of my favorite analogies is there's lots of instances where you can do online banking, but there's a lot of instances where you want to go in and see your financial advisor or speak to a bank teller. And it's the same thing with telemedicine. There's a lot of instances like perhaps a quick medication refill where my patient is stable or I have a young mom who has three kids and just can't come into the clinic because her life is really busy. Um, and I'm happy to see them through telemedicine. But there's also instances where perhaps there's an elderly patient who describes concerning symptoms or a new diagnosis of cancer where I want to see that patient face-to-face 
and telemedicine isn't appropriate and it doesn't give the type of care that we want to and it's not safe. So this exists on a spectrum. Uh, will there be uh, resistance to this? Uh, now that we're here, it seems obvious. I mean, the first few days, week, whatever, until you figure it all out. Uh, but once all this becomes the norm, we realize we can do this. But is there resistance once this is all over to go back to the old way? I think for physicians um, and maybe even patients as well who still aren't comfortable with the technology um, or don't feel confident using it, even despite the pandemic right now, there probably will be resistance. I will say a lot of the resistance in Canada has come from perhaps the corporations who have put out this technology and have really catered to fragmented care. So that idea of having a physician in your pocket um, or it's been catered to the private healthcare sector. And so I think when we start to see these tools and technologies being used by community family physicians, community specialists that can service everybody in a way that's safe, we're really breaking down that resistance. Will this become the new norm, as, as you've mentioned, for certain things? I mean, it's not, a, it's not a, certainly the answer to all questions, but will we see this continue or will there be a lag, do you think? I really hope so. And I'm, I'm, a lot of my colleagues have said the same. They feel more confident with it. They want to use it. They see how much easier it makes certain type of healthcare, care, um, especially in terms of transportation and patients who are in rural areas. What we need to see, though, is we need to have government support for these type of tools and technologies. And so that's either um, payment for physicians or support in building these technologies so we can bring these tools into our community family clinics and community specialist clinics. Uh, Indravir Mahal has been with us, family physician, global journalist, uh, global journalism fellow, Dalatlana School of Public Health, University of Toronto, and talking about telemedicine. And just like with banking or e-learning, what we're seeing with the students doing, uh, are we uh, are we blazing the trail for what's coming after COVID-19? Indravir, thank you so much for the time and insight. Be well. Thanks for having me, Scott, and you stay healthy, too. We will try. In this argument, discussion, debate, Wild West, as Christia Freeland says, for masks, for medical masks, Chinese company Huawei, who wants to supply us with a 5G network, is offering us masks. So is this goodwill or is this corporate bribery? To talk more about all of this, Elliot Tepper is with us, Emeritus Professor, Carleton University. He's with us now. Elliot, thank you so much for joining us. Hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. Thank you. Good afternoon. I hope everybody in the CHML family is, you know, doing well. We're all getting by, Elliot. We're uh, we're uh, all coming together for this. It's it's actually right. uniting. It's very cool. Uh, goodwill or corporate bribery? What are your thoughts on all of this? Um, multiple thoughts, really. The Prime Minister of Canada was asked that question, not quite as sharply today, and his response was. Uh, it's basically it's nice of Huawei to be. I think he put it more generically. If companies wish to donate materials to Canada, uh, that's welcome. But don't uh, don't expect any change of policy toward any particular company uh, later down the line. And I suppose that's the official response from the government of Canada. Why isn't it China that's offering these masks as opposed to Huawei? Are, are we saying that, you know, one didn't know what the other one was doing here? Why the corporate donation rather than one from the country? Well, that's a good question. The, the, 
one of the issues about Huawei is, is it really different from the government of China? If we thought it was simply a private company where there was no concern about particularly the, the remember the government of China is the government of the Communist Party of China. And if there was no uh, concern that this was actually a private company, as Huawei keeps insisting, but that it's rather an agent of or open to influence by, and by law, having to build a backdoor into their technology uh, for the government of China, and for the Communist Party of China, there wouldn't be an issue. But uh, no, there's a, a concern that any Chinese company is actually close to the government. And as to the donations themselves, uh, here's some things I think to bring it some uh, perspective to it. Huawei is not singling out Canada for this. Huawei is on a global uh, mission to be helpful uh, all around the world, really. They've had a massive program in Asia as well as in Africa, certainly in Europe as well. And they're just part of the nominally private sector response. Alibaba of uh, Jack Ma, you know, they, the company that basically replicates all of the Western companies' activities uh, in the private sector all in one company. He's also uh, given a lot of private charity. So on the one hand, there's been a massive outpouring of private companies, not only Huawei, but others, and not only to Canada, but around the world. And in fact, in Europe, uh, the private companies were donating, but so was the government of China, coming back to your question. The government of China has also been very active in providing materials. And um, when the question of what to do about Huawei and Europe came up. It's in the article you, I think you're referring to in the Globe and Mail. Once again, excellent mm -hmm. reporting out of the Globe and Mail's uh, chief foreign uh, correspondent there. Mm -hmm. But uh, he re he's uh, quoting the response by the EU saying we're concerned about narratives here and that this might be just a way for the, for the Chinese government and for Huawei, which is under scrutiny as well, Remember, they are trying to be the supplier of 5G technology to the world, and it's long thought that the Chinese government has selected them to be a champion and is helping them, and uh, so that's raised our suspicions justifiably. But Europe has, uh, has uh, raised, as you've seen in that article, Huawei responded by saying, look, we don't want to be part of geopolitics. We are backing off our donations to Europe because we don't want to be part of a, a conflict over narratives. That's not our goal. So it's a complex situation, but remember Canada is especially concerned, but we are not the only, only country involved in all this. Would China know what Huawei's up to? They must. Like, this must all be part of a larger plan. Would it not be well uh, orchestrated? Again, the private Companies in China all insist they're exactly that. They're private. And in regard to Huawei, the, they have an independent operation here uh, for Canada, and the leader, the head of that uh, company in Canada, has offered to submit any concerns about the equipment, equipment uh, over 5G independently to uh, inspection by Canadian authorities because, no, absolutely not, they're not connected to the government of China. However, uh, and remember, we have not yet made a decision. And a number of European countries were also on the fence or had gone against Huawei. And so there's a lot of con uh, questioning. Is all this 
helpfulness by Huawei in an attempt to get back in the good books of of European countries and uh, certainly our own. But so uh, is this is this is this generosity proof that they're a great company and we shouldn't be feeling the way we are towards them? <laughs> Uh, my view of this is somewhat similar to, I, I preceded, but it's parallel to the government of Canada's. We are in a moment of crisis. We will accept help from any source that we mm -hmm. can, and that includes Huawei and even the government of China, if necessary. But that down the line will lead to reflection on what it means uh, when the crisis abates. And it, uh, in the government of Canada's mind, does not create an obligation but, you know, uh, the Chinese government and the companies, which really can only operate if they have the support, not the opposition of the government, uh, if they are on a global campaign right now, as they seem to be, Scott, saying, look at the United States. They aren't leading a global effort to help anybody. They are, in fact, in the, in the case of Canada, you could point to this specifically. They are not, but we can. Uh, take a look at how 3M is being treated by America in regards to Canada. 3M says they got a contract. Trump said, no, you can't honor the contract. Well, okay, now maybe you can after a considerable effort by Canada. Meanwhile, China and its private sector companies are going around the world saying, we're here to help. This is absolutely brilliant when you think of it, Elliot, because as Donald Trump slams the door in Canada's face, China is taking care of everyone. Does Donald Trump not realize this, that he's being outplayed here? You can broaden that out and say, has that not been clear from his policies all along? I mean, he yeah. has said, and it's part of a global trend, uh, America first. And the end of globalization as we've known it, uh, was signaled by Brexit and then by the, the election of Donald Trump, so that the whole mood of every country should only look after itself was already very strong before this crisis. Now I'm very uh, concerned that we are moving from, um, you know, the borderless world that we all took for granted a very short time ago into this war of each against all, you know, the Lord of the Flies scenario. And here's China saying, well, if the U.S. wants to behave that way, uh, there's, there's alternatives. We, we'll show you what it means to be a world leader. This, of course, after they were the original source of the virus. That's and, the whole uh, thing that's fascinating in all yes. this, is now they are the hero after something that originated in their own country. That almost sounds like Donald Trump when he fabricates a crisis, then pretends to solve it all. Except this is a real crisis. And, yeah. uh, yes, the changing of the narrative by the Chinese, that is, changing history as they see it and want us to see it is also part of what's going on. They were uh, a responsible party from the beginning. They were helpful from the beginning. They, they were all, always transparent, and now that, they have been help, now that they've worked on their own uh, situation, they're willing to lead the world. So that's the, the narrative they are putting out. That is, they are staking their claim to leadership uh, through this crisis, and since we're talking about Huawei, this is also a battle for the future. Who's going to run the technology of the future? Who's going to own the technology future of the globe? And they are laying a strong claim to that through Huawei and other companies. Will the two Michaels be their final chip in this game? Well, coming back to this is a global effort by Huawei, not just Canadian, and a Chinese global effort, 
we have very special circumstances, and we have very special concerns, and that is, of course, as you just mentioned, the two Michaels, which goes back to our arrest of Meng Wanzhou, the uh, the company and party princess uh, that we have still uh, on trial. I Let's put it this way. There is some faint hope that what we are seeing by these gestures by the Canadian or by the Chinese government and the private sector connected to that government, it possibly could be considered an exit ramp or a thaw. China has been paying a high price for its activities, um, particularly vis-a-vis Canada, but Canada has globalized its uh, its uh, concerns and gotten support. So you could see this potentially as you know, ping pong diplomacy under Nixon or the uh, opening in the in the Olympics uh, from North Korea, saying, "Okay, we're ready for a peace offensive." This could be seen as a first step toward leading to a process of reconciliation, which down the line could affect the two Michaels. And I'd like to also remind ourselves, Hussein Chalil, a Uyghur activist that's long been under. Uh, arrest for arbitrary purposes in our view. So uh, a Canadian Chinese. So uh, that's a possibility. I don't see it likely, (laughs) but uh, Mm. if anything is to come out of this miasma we're in, if this led to a process of de-escalation and an opening that led to uh, some improvement of the situation of the two Michaels and others, and even to their release, well, that would be a welcome outcome. Always a fascinating discussion with you. Has been with us, emeritus professor of political science, Carleton University. Thank you so much for the time. As always, we'll chat again. Well, you're very welcome, Scott. And stay home, stay well. I will too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're, we're hearing from those most vulnerable that need the most uh, amount of help. And this is another angle that uh, that is coming to the forefront as well. And those that are uh, using uh, homeless or uh, shelters, uh, domestic uh, running from domestic violence, uh, all kinds of situations like this that you can imagine now are just accelerated in uh, a, a time of a, of a pandemic and, and social self-distancing and isolation and such. Uh, and, and how are these people coping with the new challenge that we're all facing? Let's bring in Caitlin Schwan, co-chair, Women's National Housing and Homeless Network, and is with us now. Caitlin, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. How has this crisis, this pandemic, uh, changed the challenges for you and and those that do the work that you do? Yeah, well, what you're seeing is, I mean, folks have been saying it for weeks now. We're seeing unprecedented challenges um, in terms of responding to this crisis. I think what the pandemic has really exposed is how central housing is to our safety, to our dignity, to our health. And, you know, there are so many Canadians across the country that do not have access to safe housing, to adequate housing. So in many communities, the shelters that have been operating, providing incredible emergency services for for decades, honestly, they've been full for decades. And now we're seeing huge increases in the number of people who are experiencing homelessness, who are experiencing domestic violence. That has really increased. 
And so the burden on shelters and drop-ins, the violence against women sector is, is really quite large. And the challenges around access to personal protective equipment are huge. Um, so obviously healthcare service providers really need that equipment, but those on the front lines working on homelessness issues have really limited access there. And uh, it, it's, it's really quite a challenge. Um, there has been a big federal investment into the homelessness sector, uh, which has been wonderful to see as well as the VAW sector. Um, so as those funds move into communities, I'm, I'm hopeful that we will see uh, a, a heightened ability to respond to the kind of challenges we're seeing. But, but it is, I have to tell you, it is tough right now. And, and you have to think that during times like this, those that are experiencing domestic violence and challenges within the home, this just heightens everything. It really does. It really does. So, like, for example, today I was speaking with um, some folks who provide services for those who are experiencing domestic violence, and they are getting calls from people whose partners are, for example, holding, uh, holding access to technology who are preventing their partners from accessing uh, soap, water, hand sanitizers, information about what is happening about COVID. So for most of your listeners, um, presumably we feel like we can largely access all the information we want about COVID and how to protect ourselves and our our families. But for for women, for example, who are in abusive situations, um, that may not be possible. And, you know, if you were... If you had a few hours away from your abuser when you went to work or uh, when your abuser was out of the house at their job or or out in the community, you might have a reprieve, um, whereas now you have folks largely locked into situations that can be very violent, uh, very dangerous, and, you know, family resources are dwindling in that context, and it, it really creates a perfect storm. What advice do you give for those that are caught in those situations right now? What can they do? Yeah, well, I mean, what we need to see is really government action in terms of escalating the availability of emergency housing provisions. So, as I said, you know, prior prior to this, the the violence against women sector, on average, um, Statistics Canada did this great study and they, they captured a, a single day in all domestic violence shelters across Canada, and they found that they were turning away um, about, uh, about a 1,000 women and children uh, each day just due to capacity issues, and that was prior to COVID. So we really need an expansion of safe housing. And, I mean, honestly, hotels, motels, other kind of emergency provision is is probably going to need to be expanded quite quickly so that we can enable um, women and their children and and any folks who are experiencing that that kind of violence to to get out um, and be supported by the services that are in their communities are these services still available are they open during the pandemic uh, how has that affected uh, level of service and such yeah, so it's it's been different in different communities, as you might expect, and um, it's been different in the homelessness sector versus the, the violence against women sector. Um, a lot of services have been providing supports more online, more over the phone. Um, various women shelters have 
had to really reduce the kind of services they provide or shut down drop-in services, or whereas, for example, you had a, a drop-in program where uh, maybe 100 folks could come in and access supports, um, they may be limiting that now down to 15 or 20 folks to ensure that social distancing. Um, so, I mean, I, I just applaud the incredible creativity and innovation that's happening on the ground as as folks are trying to ensure safety while also providing services. Um, and I mean, all of us are, are just kind of doing our best to do that as quickly as possible. But there are some communities where you are, I, I mean, services had, have had little opportunity beyond having to, sh to shut down. Um, so as we're seeing increases in, in crises, we're also seeing more constrained services. Uh, we were talking about a survey which was done earlier in the week. Uh, I believe it was mm -hmm. a ledger survey that said that more people were aware of those that were vulnerable now and that more people felt concerned for the vulnerable than themselves during this pandemic. Will we see a shift in thinking here or like many crises, once the rover, we go back to our old ways? Oh, I just love this question. That's such a good question. Um, I mean, I'm forever an optimist in terms of uh, a moment of crisis being an opportunity for us to change our thinking. I mean, I think for folks, um, it, it becomes exceedingly clear how dependent upon each other we are. You know, like my own safety depend and my own vulnerability to this illness depends on your ability to remain in your home, to remain safe and secure. Um, and we often think... It, you know, unfortunately, in very individualistic ways, very often. Um, and this pandemic is a gift insofar as it enables us to see how mutually dependent we are on each other for our well-being, for our security, for our dignity. And so I, I'm really, really hopeful that we will see a shift there. I mean, something I've been saying and I, I really hope to hear everywhere I go is, is we have an opportunity to end homelessness here. For, like Spain, for example, is introducing a universal basic income that they plan to extend indefinitely. Um, various countries have almost, you know, I shouldn't say ended homelessness, but have very quickly ended the experience of street homelessness in, in their cities um, on the basis of public safety and for concerns for folks experiencing homelessness. So I think... What I really hope will happen is the thinking around homelessness being an intractable problem. We're seeing that it really isn't. With political will and urgency, we can get there um, pretty quickly. And none of the solutions are going to be perfect imminently, but we have a real opportunity here to actually end homelessness in Canada. Caitlin Schwann has been with us, co-chair, Women's National Housing and Homeless Network. Caitlin, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated, and good luck moving forward. Thank you so much. Have a great one. You too. A recent poll out by uh, the Ledger people that says that more Canadians are becoming frightened by this. More Canadians are um, certainly becoming aware of the need in what they have to do in order to curb this pandemic. Let's bring in Dr. Penelope, uh, Dr. Penelope Ironstone, uh, Director, MA in Culture Analysis and Social Theory, Associate Professor, Department of Communication Studies, Wilfrid Laurier University, and she is with us now. Pen uh, Penelope, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, thank you for having me. 
I hope you're doing well during this time. Uh, before we get to this poll and such, uh, obviously you're in uh, the field of communication studies. Your thoughts on how our leaders have been doing and, and conveying information. We're certainly seeing through these polls that more people are taking this seriously. Absolutely. And I think that that poll also demonstrates that there is a greater trust and belief in the ways that our provincial and federal governments are handling this unprecedented situation. I think that it is clear um, when we see the cooperation that's taking place across what were formerly antagonistic party lines, as it were, that we're, we're getting more confident that they're on the same page in the same playbook and taking it very seriously. I think that the communication that we've seen, uh, particularly over the last couple of weeks, has been quite solid. It has been consistent or fairly consistent, and that it uh, demonstrates to us that we can trust our our elected and public officials uh, to be managing what is happening right now. What does the public need to see? What do they need to hear in times like this? They need to have a steady set of hands, as it were. They need to have that, again, that consistency, the commonality of message and purpose, and to have the language uh, in which it is spoken be something that they think that they can trust, that there is an idea of transparency. I think that over the last week we saw, I think, a little bit of a rattled Doug Ford. Um, Not great to lie, I watched all of the the press conferences and the severity of of what is happening and the unprecedented nature of it was something that was really conveyed incredibly well in his face. But his ability to defer to medical experts and to other experts who have, quite frankly, been preparing for an event like this for a very, very long time, uh, his deferral to them and his uh, words of, 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 of consolation and the development of relief plans for people do a great job of sort of increasing the trust that people have that what they're doing and, and all of these extraordinary measures are measures that are necessary. Uh, and it seems now that the messaging is a bit more consistent around uh, uh, travelers coming back in, in a week or two ago. It, well, it started to become, I think, more consistent in the last week or so uh, as the March break cycle sort of came to an end. At the beginning, it, it, it kind of seemed like mixed messaging. But I, I totally understand in any situation like this where it's completely new ground, uh, leaders are, are, are taking their time and, and trying to, to do what's right balance everything out that being said we're certainly getting another example of mixed messaging when it comes around masks Uh, not only the supply of them but whether to wear them or not wear them your thoughts on all of that I, I do think that there is a factor in the, particularly the what seems like uh, uh, waffling by um, by Tam I don't think it is waffling I think that Really, people don't understand how complex the research is on where, whether or not masks are actually uh, going to be helpful. And I think part of the problem is we're, of course, getting mixed messages across the border because, obviously, we've heard very different things coming out of the U.S. government than we have from our own public health officials here. Now, the recommendation, the recent recommendation is one that, well, yes, maybe people can wear masks, but what people are misunderstanding about the masks is that it's not to protect yourself 
so much as it is to protect other people, particularly if you're asymptomatic or are not yet showing symptoms. So when TAM is, is not a, a full recommendation, it is not uh, those saying that we should all be going out and getting masks. We do have to remember that the supply of masks, as you just mentioned, is, is, is one that is quite precarious right now, uh, particularly the 3M uh, example where the, the U.S. government uh, seemingly interfering with, with deals that were made some time ago about access to masks, particularly N95 masks that are absolutely needed by our frontline medical workers. Now, other masks, the idea of homemade masks and so forth, one of the problems that we have is that even when it comes to masks that um, are uh, of the grade to be able to manage a, a virus like this, first point is that they're never 100%. There's approximately a 90% uh, a protection rate with, with the N95 masks. But the reality is that most people don't actually know how to use them and to use them properly and may ask, actually increase the risks of, 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 of infection because they don't know how to use them. So this is one of the challenges that they have is that the reality is that the mask might seem to do something, uh, but not necessarily if people don't know how to use them. Also, I believe the initial messaging on masks where, you know, we don't need them, the average person doesn't need them, who needs them are the front-line uh, healthcare workers, and that is directly, you know, obviously tied to uh, the supply chain and how many yeah. there are, and as you said, what's the sense of you and I using one if we're not even using it right when these can be used for healthcare people? And particularly because... Some of the measures that we've now come to understand as central to how we as individuals can manage ourselves within, within this pandemic moment, um, things like physical distance, keeping that distance away from people, things like washing your hands, things like not touching your face. The scale of the problem, a global pandemic, doesn't seem to match the scale of the response. How can something as simple as washing our hands help to keep us safe? And I think that there are people doubt the ability of something so simple to manage something that is so frightening. And what about models? We've heard different variations of this. And, and you know, I know the Prime Minister's latest response is to wait to see what everything it comes in from the provinces and such. But we all know this information is there. Ontario released it uh, earlier on. Quebec talking about doing that uh, in the days to come. Do we should we have all of the information, even if it's a projection, uh, hypothetical, as long as it's qualified, or is it better not to have that information? I think the interesting thing about models, as you pointed out, is the fact that a model is a projection based on current information, and the information can change, and it's based on, on ideas connected to behavior change and so forth. So the models are helpful for those who are, for example, trying to plan for and be prepared in a hospital setting for maybe being overwhelmed with numbers of patients, uh, for trying to understand some of the pressures that there will be on the system. But for most everyday people, and this is one of the problems of communicating science, medicine, and health, is that most people don't necessarily have the level of scientific literacy uh, to be able to understand uh, really how these models are, are, are created, what their um, what what challenges there may be in really being able to quantify particular sorts of things. 
Um, scientific literacy is something that we see within all sorts of risks, where how can we take an idea about a population, which is being able to think the population of, is everybody in Canada, and then to map that onto our ideas of individual risks. Um, the other thing is that there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty in all science that is connected to this. And in the fullness of time, we might be able to reflect backward on, on various things and what factors uh, played a role. But that uncertainty is something that they're very concerned about. Um, even when the pandemic was called, you know, the idea of using the word pandemic was a concern for, for the head of the World Health Organization because people don't necessarily mean, understand what, what that word means and what it can entail. Um, and but at least if you're giving them the opportunity to know what that word is, then they can at least look it up. I mean, I have experts on here every single day and, 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 and academics who are, are, are dealing with matters that, that we most people can't even fathom. Yet the really good ones are able to break that down into layman's terms and maybe not explain, you know, the, the academia of it all, but certainly bring it down to common terms. Terms that everyone can understand. So uh, again, I, I, I think it's better to get clarity. And I mean, even if the model isn't clear, but at least forthright in the information, then thinking someone's holding something back. I'm not hearing all right. of the angles here. Oh, and, and, you know, and in this circles back to transparency and such. I mean, even if we don't like the answer or even if it's draws on, along political lines where we might not necessarily agree with it, I think there is a way to explain that, is there not? I think that, uh, you know, as I'm watching uh, various scientists uh, explaining some of the, the features of this pandemic, I am actually growing in confidence at their ability to explain more complex concepts to our, our uh, to populations. They've not been notoriously good at it historically, that we have to remember that. My concern is only that, you know, how do we get our news in order to be able to understand these concepts? Uh, usually we're talking in sound bites or we, we're talking about social media feeds where people don't necessarily read everything. And my concern would be that people would identify with the worst case scenario, therefore, thereby multiplying anxiety around, around this event. That said, the issue of transparency is one I've already raised. How do, is it that we can trust our officials if we don't know that we were getting all of the information and or that it's being or it's that it's being um, manipulated in some way we are incredibly skeptical and i agree with you that i think that canadians we we can do better at understanding this information particularly if it's presented to us well but again science is not necessarily been notoriously good at doing that. So I think that my concern is that that certain ideas uh, may be just beyond um, beyond beyond particular kinds of comprehension, or that people will pick up one part of the story that is being told and over-identify with it. So to become very very afraid. How important is it for leaders to take the talking points, which we know their staff is giving them and wants them to continually sell, whether it's reassuring people or, or what have you, doing what government has to do in situations like this, but also being transparent enough to answer the questions. And, and I think all leaders have been doing a great job uh, of trying to keep the balance here. But right. what, what's, what's troubling me with the prime minister is that he 
he's not answering basic questions. And 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 the one that, that comes to mind was yesterday when it was asked whether he was aware of what had happened with the, the stopping of the masks and the border and such. And again, whether you're totally plugged into all the different departments that are involved in this and in what sort of answers you can give to satisfy the public, but to not really just come out and answer the question yes or no and then offer an explanation or, or, or even offer something other than the standard soundbite, I think that just frustrates people. Especially I, I, when we're hearing the, especially when we're hearing this information from other governments, other sources, and other, it's, it's like everybody's telling us, but, but the leader. Right, right. I think that uh, the uh, 11 a.m. presser uh, press conference is a is maybe not the an ideal format for all kinds of messaging going to, to people. But I also believe that that there is a place for um, specific knowledges to be related by specifically qualified people. I'm not sure that our prime minister is specifically qualified to speak about the uh, negotiations that he may not have had a role in. But at the same time, I can see why why the public would be frustrated and sort of feel that that it's um, perhaps being a little bit more flippant than than it is uh, being transparent. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, Dr. Penel- uh, Penelope Ironstone has been with us. Thank you so much, doctor. Much appreciated. Uh, and good luck and stay healthy moving forward. Thank you very much. You too. You know, here we are. It's uh, the last portion of the show. Uh, we try to do something a little light as we end. And with us being in a lockdown and a pandemic, we are leading a much simpler life, a much smaller life. Let's bring in Liette Vasseur, Brock University Professor of Biological Sciences and UNESCO Chair in Community Sustainability, and is with us now. Liette, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hello. Are you there, Liette? Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> So we're certainly living a much smaller life now, Liette. How do you think this is going to change us after COVID-19? Well, I think it will probably bring people to understand a little bit more uh, what they can do uh, in a more basic way uh, and probably appreciate a little bit more probably how they can work in their backyard or the balcony or uh, different places uh, that are not necessarily just uh, traveling all over the place. You know, it's uh, we have a busy household here. We got two kids, uh, high school and elementary school. Both my wife and I uh, work, and we're all at home right now. And it seems that every day there is a challenge, a list. There's something. There's there's so much going on. As with any family like this, there's so much going on within the individual family. There's so much structure, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's gone. And, you know, the doors are closed and everybody's staying in. Now, we're fortunate enough that we still get to work from home and we're both capable of doing that. But it's as if nothing else counts. And my wife and I were talking about this the other day. It's all almost liberating once you get past the challenge that you and then you wonder what what was I worrying about before? What, what was on that list? Are, are you finding that? Yeah, I think for many people, this is what's happening is that uh, we feel our life as much as we can and sometimes probably a little too much. And this will allow people to uh, to start rethinking 
do we need to go to uh, the restaurants every couple of days? Do we need to uh, go to the shopping mall and get a new uh, cell phone because the Apple says that we have to have a new one? Uh, these are the type of things that people will have to rethink a little bit more now. It seems we're, uh, as this started, people started complaining about what we can't do. Are we now realizing what we can do and what is important? Yes, and especially with uh, the uh, spring coming and the summer gradually, uh, there are so many other things that people can do and uh, that don't cost a lot of money, that uh, bring us back, in fact, to nature, uh, and uh, that uh, can be highly enjoyable. And in some cases, if we looked at uh, home gardening, for example, uh, bring you pride of uh, producing your own food. Uh, are more and more people, do you think this spring, as we head into Easter, will start doing this? Do you think more and more people, I mean, you're talking about growing local, from local to global. Do you think this, and, and we're certainly seeing what's happening with the food chain when some people are buying more than what they need. Do you think this is going to make us look inward and start growing our own? Well, I'm hoping, at least for some people, uh, it's, a, it's certainly a change for a lot of people. Uh, I know that I have just did my walk this afternoon, and uh, it's amazing how many people are working in their backyard or the front yard and doing work. Uh, so it, it's kind of interesting because suddenly uh, people have more time now to be able to do uh, what often they, they, they were only able to do themselves, uh, probably hiring a contractor or probably leaving to <laughs> nothing. So that's probably going to uh, bring people to think a little bit more. Let's talk about something like a simple vegetable garden. Say there's someone out there that has never done this, always talked about it. Why is this a good time to do this? Well, it's uh, the spring, so we can start planning. Uh, it doesn't need a lot of work. Uh, people sometimes think that uh, you need uh, to uh, spend the rest of your day in the garden, but this is not completely true. I do my own garden, uh, even if I'm working probably around 80 hours a week, and uh, that's not too much complicated. Just need a bit some soil, some seeds, uh, leave Mother Nature giving us some uh, sun and some rain, and that's it. And I'm guessing this is very relaxing for you or for those that do it, no matter how hectic the schedule is. This is this is a therapeutic time, is it not? Yeah, exactly. And you can uh, look outside for, for kids, for example. This is a great uh, exercise to know how plants are growing, uh, how many seeds are going to germinate. Um, so it's become as well an education tool. Uh, do you think once this is all over, we will revert back to the way we were? Or do you think any of this will stick moving forward? I'm hoping it will stick. Uh, the, the reason is we know that we cannot go on this way. Uh, I, there are a lot of uh, discussions online, especially for those working in sustainability, uh, looking at uh, the system that we had uh, is not sustainable. And uh, we have to start rethinking about uh what really we need to do, uh, how we have to do it, uh, and uh, if we really, really need uh, all these um, consumption factors that we're adding all the time. Uh, and this is a very big concern, especially uh, when it will come back to, uh, um, to more normal. Um, are we going to keep the same 
saying no, I hope not. Because, you know, thinking about more building, more infrastructure to be able to bring back the economy, the thing is we have a limit in the planet. At one point, there will be no more resources. Liat Vashur has been with us, Brock University Professor of Biological Sciences and UNESCO in Community Sustainability from Local to Global. Liat, thank you so much for the insight. Be well. You're welcome. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.